to Exodus in chapter 29 this morning as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus. Last week, we looked at the priestly garments. Um, the week before that, we looked at the priesthood that God picked. Uh, actually, I guess it was last week in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. Uh, God spoke to Moses, and he said, uh, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me. And, and the word minister is kind of a churchy word, but minister just literally means serve. Set apart your brother and his sons that they may serve me. And in order to serve God, they're going to have to do some things to get ready for that. But what's interesting about that preparation is that God picks them, and then he prepares them, and then he gives them everything that they need to serve. And so in Exodus chapter 29... In verse 1, it says, this is what you shall do to them. So in the context, talking about Aaron and his sons. This is what you shall do to them. To hallow them. To prepare them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull, two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in, basket, in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And so verse 1 through 3, we have the offering prescribed to consecrate, or if you're from a church background, you might uh, more understand the word ordain. You know, we, when we have someone that's going to serve in a, an official capacity, and God's called them, God is the one that ordains people to serve. And yet, Many times we have a ceremony, if you will, to ordain them. And I always look at it this way. If you're ordaining someone, if you're a human being and you're called to ordain someone, really an ordination ceremony is you laying hands on them physically, praying for them, and recognizing that God has already called them. You're just pointing it out in a practical way. So when we have deacons or elders, or if we believe someone's called to uh, be a pastor. When we lay hands on them, we're not the ones ordaining them. God has ordained them. God chooses whom he will. And yet, we recognize that we lay hands on them in a, uh, social, in, in a gathering at church in order to point out to everybody else. We recognize that this is what God has called this person to do, and we want everyone to recognize that as well. And so God ordains, but he also sanctifies and so these offerings that they're going to make in order to ordain the priests, notice that he says, Moses, I want you to gather these things that you're going to offer to the Lord, and these offerings are going to be on behalf of the priest. And so in verse 1 through 3, we have the offering prescribed. Verse 4, it says, Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And we've talked about this. The tabernacle was the place where they would meet with God. But at the door is particularly where he tells them to, to bring Aaron and his sons, and you shall wash them with water. So a bath is what we take to get clean, right? And in this case, they have a bronze laver, which is basically a big baptismal, sitting out in front of the tabernacle. And the way to service is through cleansing and sacrifice. 
And so there's this bronze laver. They wash the priests. They cleanse them right there at the door. And the, the point is, is in order to serve God, you have to be clean. You have to be prepared. You have to be clean. It's just like serving food. You have to wash your hands before you serve people food, right? If there's anything we learned in the last two years, you need to wash your hands. And for those of us that didn't already know that, we learned it a bunch, right? Uh, we made our hands raw with hand sanitizer and soap. But the point is, is in order to serve God, it's the same thing. You need to have your hands cleansed so that the impurities that are on us don't blind the way so that people can't see God. Verse 5 says, Then you shall take the garments and put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. And you shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on his turban. So we went into lots of detail last week in chapter 28. All these garments point us to Jesus Christ. But they are to be clothed. But I want you to notice that before they're anointed, I want you to notice that before the offerings are made, that they have the priestly garments put on them before that, before they serve. But these garments aren't things that they show up with. They show up empty-handed. They show up naked, not physically naked, but they show up without any garments that qualify them to serve God. They just show up to the door ready to take a bath. They show up ready to be clothed. But notice this, that they are clothed by Moses. He gives them the garment that qualifies them to serve God. They didn't have it already. Many times people are afraid to come to God because they're like, well, I don't have anything to give. Well, guess what? If you recognize that your hands are empty, that you're not qualified to serve God, you're in a good spot. There is no man, no woman, no child, no human being on earth that is qualified to be in the presence of God. That's why there has to be sacrifice made. That's why there's garments that he's going to clothe them with. Now, do we wear turbans? Do we wear uh, a breastplate? Do we wear an ephod or a tunic like is described in chapter 28? No. But it says that our clothing in Christ are robes of righteousness. We didn't show up to church with those things on. God gave them to us through his son Jesus. But as they are clothed, it says, now that they are clothed for service, verse 7 says, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. So this oil is to be poured out, and the oil that they're talking about is not vegetable oil, although it is. It's, it's olive oil. And this oil, the only way to get olive oil is to crush olives. So that olive oil is now poured over the head of Aaron to signify the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what qualifies a person to serve God. And then verse 8, you shall bring his sons, Aaron's sons, and put tunics on them. They have to be clothed for service as well. Even though they're not the high priest, they still have to have on priestly garments. And then verse 9, you shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and put the hats on them. The priesthood shall be theirs as a family for a perpetual statute. So you shall consecrate Aaron and his sons. So the word consecrate, we're going to see a bunch of times today. The word consecrate means to fill one's hand. 
They're going to serve God. They're going to need their hands full. They're going to have their hands full. They're going to be busy all the time. They're going to wear out. And so God says, I'm going to prepare them. I'm going to clothe them. I'm going to deal with their sin. And then they'll be qualified to serve in my tabernacle. And so the consecration for their ordination is about to take place. So how are they to be consecrated? Verse 10. You shall also have the bull brought before the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the bull. And then you shall kill the bull before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So, how many of you have ever had to kill an animal? You don't have to raise your hands. I know many of you have. Some of you have thought, I'm never going to kill an animal. That's not my deal. Some of you love to do it, and it makes you so happy. I like to deer hunt. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't mind having to kill livestock. I don't mind having to kill an animal that's sick. Um, but here's the thing. I don't know that I would ever want to lay my hand on them while I'm killing them. There's something, you're too close. You know what I'm saying? It's always interesting to me that at Passover, before they would sacrifice the, the, the lamb, that they would spill the blood and put it on the doorframe of the house so that the Lord would pass over them and the firstborn would be saved from death. It's always interesting to me that the, the tradition says you bring the lamb into your house for a few days so that you can make sure it has no blemishes and that you also build a relationship with it as you get ready to sacrifice it. Because it's a personal sacrifice. It's meant to be something that affects you emotionally. It's meant to be something that is real to you. If someone is to sacrifice this animal for the priests, and they're never a part of it, it becomes like, oh yeah, something died for me. But if you lay your hand on an animal while they're slitting its throat, it's very real. It's very personal. It's almost awkward. But they would slit its throat, and they would kill it while their hands are on it. Why? Because when they're laying their hands on it, they're symbolically transferring the guilt of their sin to that animal. And then that animal, think about it like Jesus, he became sin who knew no sin that he might become for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Our sin, our guilt transferred to this bull. This bull killed, put to death, our sin put to death in that bull, and then we become righteous. The bull dies as a substitutionary sacrifice, just like Jesus Christ has done for us. That's why it's personal. That's why you have to come to him personally. It can't be your parents. It can't be your grandparents. It can't be your brother or your cousin. It has to be you coming to Jesus and saying, I need you. It's got to be personal. So, verse 10 and 11, we see that he describes the, that Aaron and his sons had to put their hands on the head of the bull, and then they would kill the bullock by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And verse 12 says, You shall take some of the blood of the bull, put it on the horns of the altar. Remember, the altar had these horns on the corners of it. And you shall put the blood on the horns of the altar with your finger, 
And I believe they did this because it was to make the blood prominent so you would see it as you looked at the altar. But then the rest of it would be poured all the blood beside the base of the altar. And what they were doing is they were purifying the altar with blood. You and I, if we get blood on us, we, we think that we're dirty. And no doubt we are. We can transmit disease through blood. But in this case, the animal's blood was sacrificial blood. It was an innocent animal being offered up. So the blood would actually make the altar holy. And anything that the blood would touch would be made holy in the sight of the Lord. You shall take all the fat and covers, excuse me, that covers the entrails of the animal. The fatty lobe that's attached to its liver. And the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But then, verse 14 says, The flesh of the bull, with its skin and its offal, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. This bull is a sin offering. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you have to have your sin dealt with. If you want to have fellowship with God in any possible way, sin has to be dealt with. It has to be put to death. And yet, what we see here is also a type of Jesus. Because if you turn to Hebrews in chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's some around you on the chairs. But in Hebrews chapter 13, in verse 11, it says, The bodies of those animals from the Old Testament, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they are burned outside the camp. The body of the animal was burned outside the camp. Why? Verse 12 says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside of the gate of the tabernacle. He suffered outside the gate of the, the mount there where the temple was in the New Testament. Therefore, it says, let us go bo- forth to him, Jesus, outside the camp, suffering reproach for his name. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So in order to enter that continuing city, we have to have our sin dealt with. That's the point. But verse 15 goes on to say this. You shall also take one ram. So there was a bull and there was two rams. These rams were uh, sheep. You shall also take one ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and you shall take its blood and sprinkle it all around on the altar. And then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and with its head. And you shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the burnt offering, that phrase, literally means that which goes up in smoke. And I know many of you are more more holy than I am. So when you hear up in smoke, you don't think about Cheech and Chong at all. But some of you have seen that movie... Cheech and Chong up in smoke. And the reality is, is that if you listen to the dialogue, I'm pretty sure that while they were acting in the movie, they were up in smoke. Their brains were completely consumed. They were burnt out. And the reality is, 
Many of you, maybe you're not Cheech and Chong. You don't put your lives up in smoke in that way through drugs. But some of you have burned your lives up over things that are basically as useful as burning your brain cells. You're burning your lives up. They're going up in smoke in one way or another. Do you realize that? That our lives are being spent by what we burn our time doing. And some of you would say, well, I don't cuss and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. I'm glad for you. I'm glad for you. But you're still burning up your lives doing things that don't matter. And in the meantime, when the Lord asks you to burn your life up for His sake and for His glory, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, you know, I, I'm already spending all my time doing these. I don't have time. But the reality is, is that God has, is a consuming fire. And he is asking you to be willing to offer up your life as a burnt sacrifice to him. To the world, it's going to look like a waste of time, like it's in vain. But to him, it's a pleasing aroma. It's a life well lived. And I tell you what, if you'll sacrifice your life, if you'll give it wholeheartedly to him, then it won't be in vain. It will bring glory to his name. It will draw people to a relationship with him as well. And so the first ram is offered as a burnt offering, an offering that's entirely to God. Not one piece of it is used. Think about it. This ox that's being killed, it was a young bull. An ox, a bull, it's a beast of burden. It's meant to serve. It's meant to serve its master. And yet if you take, if you're a cattleman, if, you're, if you've got a ranch and you've got a herd of cattle, and you kill all your bulls, guess what? You don't have cattle for very much longer, do you? But it's a sacrifice that says, Lord, I'm giving you my best. I'm giving you this young bull before its time is up, even to be able to procreate. A young bull uh, is, is symbolic of Jesus Christ. How long did Jesus live? At 30 years old, he was washed in the water like these priests are. He was prepared. He was set aside for the service of God. And then before he was really mature, before he could have offspring, before he could be in his prime, as we call it, he was cut off, wasn't he? He was cut off in the, in the youthfulness of his years. And yet those three years that he completely allowed God the Father to consume, he gave them in sacrifice for you and I. He showed us the way to live, and he showed us the way to die. And by dying, his body goes down into the ground and it springs forth a new life so that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that he's given you and I to live a, a life that's acceptable to him and a pleasing, aromatic offering before his throne. It gives him glory and it purifies us. And so... Here we have a, a sweet aroma to God. Verse 18, You shall burn the whole ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a sweet aroma. Have you guys ever smelled burned hair? It's not good. It, it smells terrible. As a matter of fact, just the other day, I'm out in my yard, and uh, the door broke on my garage, so I replaced it. But if you're like me, you like to burn things. You don't like to throw them away. So I took the old door. I tore it into pieces. Got a little therapy there. And I threw it into the fire pit, and I burned it. And while I'm burning it, 
maybe you're like me, you're less ADD than I am, but, uh, but, but maybe you're like me, while you're doing something, you're always like, oh, but I could also do this, and then I could also do this, and then I could also do this. And while I was doing that, I, I, I'm getting tired of the dog hair in the house. So I start brushing the dog. And as I'm brushing the dog, I'm like, well, I don't want this stuff blown all over the yard because we're going to track it back in. So what do I do? I throw it in the fire pit while I'm burning the door. And then I forgot something special about burning hair. It smells terrible. And then on top of that, while I'm, like, adjusting the fire because the door doesn't fit in the fire pit, I'm folding pieces over. I get a little bit too close, and I'm burning some leaves, and the hair on my hand burned off. It starts to singe and get real curly. So the rest of the day, I'm enjoying that smell on my hands. So all that said, I remembered that hair smells terrible when it's burning. And I thought about this whole burnt offering of this ram just completely consumed for the Lord. And I thought, it's interesting that it says in verse 18, this whole offering was a sweet aroma. Do you know the Bible that, that the Bible says that the aroma that our lives put off as we are burning for the Lord is a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, but it's also it's a sweet-smelling aroma to you and I as those who have been saved by the Lord. But to the world, when our lives are consumed with Him, it smells like burnt hair. It smells like the stench of death. It's not a pleasing aroma to the world. It's an aroma that makes them think about their own short time on the earth. And so... Um, to those who are being saved, it's the, the savor of life. But to those who are perishing, it's a nasty smell. So I love this because anybody that would smell this burnt offering, this offering of a ram that would pass by Jerusalem would just smell the burnt hair and go, good grief, what are they doing? But to those who understood what was going on, that the priesthood was being ordained and set apart for God's use, it was a sweet aroma because they recognized, I'm going to get to be in the very presence of God because he has made this sacrifice for me. And so verse 19, we've seen the, the sacrifice of the bull. We've seen the sacrifice of the first ram. And then in verse 19, we see this um, second ram being offered up to the Lord. Verse 19, you shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall put their hands on the head of the ram, and then you shall kill the ram, and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, and on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. So, I don't know if you know this, but when they would lay their hands on the ram, the first the ox was offered for sin, right? Their sin's been dealt with. Now they can go into the presence of God. Then the second one is just a thanksgiving offering. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've provided. And they just completely consume it. But the second ram is offered as a consecration offering. This offering is going to fill the hands of the servant. But before you fill the hands of the servant, you have to purify the servant. You have to anoint his ear with blood and his right thumb, and his right toe, and they're going to apply that blood. But have you ever stopped and thought as you read a passage like this, is, are they just spilling it on the ground and then getting the dirty blood off the ground? No. What they would do is they would take the ram, they'd be standing there, they'd put their hand on its head, 
They'd take the knife and put it to its throat, and then another guy would be holding a bowl. Now think about this. In Revelation, we talk about bowls of judgment. But here we have the judgment taken for the priest, and we have a bowl to catch the blood. So this is, I mean, this is like horror movie stuff. And, and the reality is that the thought of spilling blood should cause us to be uncomfortable. If you're in the sight of this, this very thing taking place, it should make your stomach turn. But the reality is, is that blood had to be spilled because of what? Sin. Sin always brings forth, the consequences of sin is ultimately death. And so the putridness and the grotesqueness of this scene should make us go, wow, my sin has cost a lot. Cost the life of an innocent animal. And so we have the blood here spilled, but it's not spilled in vain. Jesus' blood was not spilled in vain. It was spilled for a purpose. It was poured out for purpose. And so it's poured out to consecrate, to fill the ear, the hand, and the foot. And the prayer would be in verse 20, Lord, consecrate my ear so that I can hear your voice. Cleanse it so that it's no longer got the wax in it, so I can hear your voice. The priest, part of his job was to hear from God on behalf of the people. And if his ears aren't set apart, he's not going to hear a thing. And then to apply the blood to the right thumb. Lord, consecrate my hands so that I can do your will instead of my own. And then the right big toe, consecrate my foot so that I can walk in your way and be pleasing to you instead of walking the way I used to. Set me apart. I want to do your will, Lord. Boy, doesn't that sound like Jesus. I have come to do your will, Lord, not my own. And then the altar is purified with the same blood that consecrates the priest. And our lives are meant to be an altar that's been purified. And our garments are to be have, having the blood applied and the oil to purify. And, and also the oil is meant to empower us. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out, empowering us to overcome sin and to deserve God in a way that shows that we are, in fact, chosen by God. And offering to the Lord all of it. Verse 21, take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil that's going to be offered and sprinkle it on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed. Where, where else do we see that word? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So they're making the garments and the priest and all these implements and the, the priest's sons. They're going to be hallowed like God is. And his sons and his son's garments with him. And so verse 22, we see that not only is the ram going to have the blood applied to the priest and the priest's garments, but then also a portion of the ram is going to be offered to the Lord. You shall take the fat of the ram, the fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the fatty lobe attached to the liver, the two kidneys and the fat on them, the right thigh, for it is a ram of consecration. One loaf of bread, remember from verse 1, we have these, these types of bread. 
one cake made with oil and one wafer from the basket of the unleavened bread that is before the Lord. So even the bread offered to God doesn't have any leaven in it, which is, remember, no sin. Just like Jesus, the bread of life, unleavened, no sin. And you shall put all of these in the hands of Aaron. Remember, consecrate means to make the hands full. So he says, take all these offerings and put them in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and you shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. So he's taking his, now he started empty-handed, right? I'm, I'm here to serve God, but I have nothing in my hands. That's how we all start, by the way. And then they come up to the presence of the Lord with full hands. God gives us everything we need to serve Him, and they wave these offerings before the Lord. They're saying, this is yours, Lord. We're offering it before you. Will you accept it? I lost my place. There it is. And they shall wave it before the Lord. And then verse 25 says, you shall receive them back from their hands... These are things that God gave to priests. They waved it before the Lord and then received them back from their hands and burned them on the altar as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma before the Lord. Does God eat things? You know, so many other gods in the world, they offer food to them. They'll hang them from the shrine. When I went to India one time, you'd see all these little shrines everywhere and they'd take, you know, baskets and bags of fruit and they'd hang them on the idols. Well, what, it would, what would they do with those, those baskets and bags of fruit? Well, the next day they'd come back, they'd take that offering off there, and then they'd hang a fresh one. Why? Because they, they were just blocks of stone and wood. They don't eat anything. But the way that the Lord receives an offering is as they burn them, that's the Lord receiving the aroma from what was burned. He's partaking in the offering. The Lord is. It's an offering made by fire to the Lord. But then, verse 26, you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. So think about it this way. The most intimate thing you can do in the Middle East is take a loaf of bread or a some food or some meat and cut it into portions and share it with someone. That's intimacy. That's fellowship. Two people eating from the same loaf or the same animal. So as Aaron is offering these things up, a portion of it is consumed by the Lord, right? But then there's a portion that the priest gets. That's fellowship with God, eating a meal with him. That's what communion is, by the way. We get a portion and the Lord is a part of that meal. He sits at the table. Verse 27, And from the ram of the consecration, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering, which is waved, and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, of that which is for Aaron, and of that which is for his sons. And it shall be for the children of Israel, for Aaron and his sons, by a statute forever, for it is a heave offering. It shall be a heave offering from the children of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, that is, their heave offering, to the Lord. And so we have one portion that's offered to the Lord. And the physical reality of this offering is that they show up with nothing and God fills their hands with everything, but it points to the fact that God is not only giving them physically what they need, 
but he's giving them uh, spiritually what they need to be in the presence of God. But what do they have to offer? They have to offer what God gave them. In Matthew chapter 10, in verse 5, there's a passage where Jesus tells his 12 disciples, I'm going to send you out, but I don't want you to take anything with you to do the things I'm asking you to do. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, he tells them, well, verse 7, he says, As you go, I want you to proclaim, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as an act of, of faithfulness, I want you to heal those who are sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, now go and freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staves, for a worker is worthy of his food. The point is, is that when I send you out to serve, don't be like the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scout motto is what? Be prepared. He says, I want you to go out, and I don't want you to take anything. with. I don't want you to be prepared. I want you to go out with just me. And as they went out, they were able to do things that they did. And then in Luke chapter 22, it says, Jesus asked them, when I sent you without, money, without a money bag or a knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And then they said, no, we didn't lack anything. We had everything that we needed. Everywhere we went, you provided food for us, places to stay, clothing. Verse 36, then he said to them, but now... I'm sending you out, and he who has a money bag, take it with them, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, speaking that he was getting ready to be killed. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, look, we have two swords. He said, that's plenty. And so my point is, is that the Lord's portion, as they offered it to him, he gave them everything that they needed to go. But then the priests are given their portion. As they gave the best of the animal, the fat, the inward parts. And I would submit to you, as you give your best to the Lord, and I don't mean your stuff. So many times when we talk about giving to the Lord, people are concerned about their stuff. But what the Lord wants from you is your inwardmost part, the part that nobody else can, can really deserve. That's your heart. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the body will go. It's the center for our reasoning. It's the center for our being. He says, give me your heart, and guess what? Giving your stuff will be no problem. Anything that God asks you to give to him, if he doesn't have your heart, you're always going to be grudged. But if he has your heart, whatever he offers you above and beyond that, you're going to be excited about it. I promise you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and he'll give you everything that you need. Talking about food and clothing. That's really all that we need, isn't it? But as they give the priest portion, verse 26, it says... Um, then you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's consecration and wave it 
And from the ram of consecration, verse 27, you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering as it is waved and the thigh of the heave offering, which is raised, and that which is for Aaron and that which is for his sons. So as they gave him the best, God gave them the rest, and it was plenty. It's a heave offering before the Lord. And so their portion, they offer it to God, and they get to keep the portion that they need. And I love this because in Luke chapter 17, it says this. Luke 17, verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses or gives up his life will preserve it. And I love this verse because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him first deny himself. That's the first step to faith, denying self. And then take up your cross and follow me. But in this verse, he says, whoever seeks to keep his life. In Acts chapter 20, it says that the disciples, and in this case it said Paul, he didn't love his life so much that he was unwilling to give it up. He didn't love it more than God. And in Luke 17, and in John chapter 12, And in Matthew chapter 16, and in Mark chapter 8, it all pens down the same thing. Do you know that not all the gospel accounts account for every little thing that happened equally? And yet this particular passage in Luke chapter 17 verse 33 says, Whoever seeks to keep his life or protect it, who's unwilling to give it up, you'll actually lose it in the end anyway. Because what does it gain to gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul? And yet in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 9, in verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, This I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You know this. If you don't scatter very much seed in a field, not much is going to come up, right? But if you gather as much as you sow as much as you can, then you'll reap a bountiful harvest. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. In other words, every work that he's called you to. Luke chapter 6 picks up on this same theme. In verse 38 it says, Give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and not just enough, but running over. And so, back in our passage, in verse 29 through 37, it says this, The holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. So these garments that the high priest wears will be passed on to his sons, to his successors. And that son who becomes a priest in his place shall put them on for seven days when he enters the tabernacle of meeting to minister in the holy place. And you shall take the ram of the consecration and boil its flesh in the holy place. And then Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Notice that all these things are taking place near the door of the tabernacle. And they shall eat those things with which the atonement was made 
to consecrate and to sanctify them, but an outsider shall not eat them because they are holy. And so before I read the first thing I have on the slide, I want to point out that the word atonement here in verse 33 is the Hebrew word kafar. You see, the atonement they made for sin in the Old Testament, the word kafar almost kind of sounds like the word cover. <laughs> it, like if you have a speech impediment, like I'm going to go kafar my car before the snow. I'm, I'm, the kafar is what God does with the blood. They take the blood into the mercy seat, and it kafars our sin. The word is cover, not cleanse. And you might be saying, wait a minute, I thought Jesus has cleansed me of my sin. Well, in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats would only cover our sin. Cover them over until the time of Christ, when the blood of Jesus, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, would cover and then cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so I love this because if in Genesis, when Noah is told to build the ark, he's told by God to kafar the ark with tar, with pitch, to kafar it so that the boat would float because it was just a wooden boat. And when it was kafared with the tar, it would raise above the waters of judgment. Sin deserves judgment. The blood atones for that judgment. But the beauty is, is that in the New Testament, Jesus' blood isn't just to kafar our sin, it's to cleanse it, to completely remove it, to cast it as far as the east is from the west. And so I thank the Lord that I don't have to trust in the blood to just cover it, but I have a cleansing blood. But in verse 29 and 30, I want to take just a minute to point out a precept here. Notice what it says here, and think about this like a dad. Aaron's a dad of his sons. It says, The holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him to be anointed in them and to be consecrated in them. What are you wearing, dads? What are you wearing? What is your life clothed in? You know this as well as I do. Psychologists call it imprinting. Kids imitate their children. Excuse me. Children imitate their parents. So parents, <laughs> kids imitate their children. That's true too. When kids have children, they imitate their kids because they want to be friends with them, right? Um, but I don't want to be a friend with my kid. I want to be their parent. I want to lead them. I want to show them the way to walk in. But the reality is, he says here, that the garments that, parent, that, that Aaron wears... His children will also wear. And I know this because when I first got into high school, guess what I was getting out of my dad's closet? I was getting out his Journey t-shirt. Because, I mean, come on, Journey, right? But the reality was, and the reality is, is that no matter what you're wearing, if you're wearing holy garments, your kids are going to have a propensity to wear those holy garments. Not always. It's not a guarantee. But if you're wearing unholy garments, the same is true. They will be consumed by those garments. They pick up all the worst things, not the best things. And so we have to be weeding our lives if we want them to weed theirs. If we want to provide them a future and a hope. As much as depends on us, we need to be careful what we're clothed in. And so verse 33 is where we landed up. But verse 34 says, If any of the flesh of the consecration offerings 
or of the bread remains until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. So the idea is this meal that was partaken of with God, this communion, if you will, to make atonement. If you want to think about atonement, you want an easy way to remember what it means. It's God make us, making us one with him. Sin separated us from God, right? Kafar covered our sins so we could be in God's presence. Atonement in the New Testament makes us partake of the same loaf, the same offering. So now we're not just having our sin covered. Now we're being made one with God. That's why his Holy Spirit can dwell within us. And so he says the offering can only be taken and eaten with those who are within, those who are chosen. That's why we don't let people that are not believers eat communion because it's not meant for them. They're taking it outside of understanding what it is. Verse 35, Thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Seven days you shall consecrate them, and you shall offer a bowl every day as a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. And so these offerings are to be made for seven days straight. Seven bowls. Not just two rams, but 14 rams. This is pretty costly. Sin is costly. And so, verse 37, Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar, sanctify it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar must be holy. Verse 38, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. So apart from the consecration offerings that are supposed to be done seven times, the rest of the year, all year long, there are to be two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at dusk or twilight. With the one lamb you shall bring one-tenth of an ephah of flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. So the lamb is offered, the lamb of God who takes the sin of the world, an ephah of flour. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. One-fourth of a hen of pressed oil. Uh, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, crushed, so that the oil the Holy Spirit exuded from his life. Not my will be done, but yours, Lord. And one-fourth of a hen of wine, the picture of sacrifice that his blood was poured out for you and me as a drink offering. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with the grain offering, the drink offering, and in the morning for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Jesus was completely consumed for you and I. And so this daily surrender is what these offerings are a picture of not just once a year not just twice a year not just at christmas not just at easter but a daily surrendering our will to his and so i want to point out what psalm 40 says it says sacrifice an offering you did not desire god's not after your sacrifices and his offerings although he does require them for sin he says, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. But then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. 
And I've told you many times, all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. God's not looking for offering. He's not looking for sacrifice. He's looking for a heart that is willing and set apart to do his will. And so in verse 42 through 46, we get the purpose of all of these offerings, all of these fatty lobes, all of this blood, all of these types of Jesus Christ. Verse 42, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And here is where I will meet with you to speak with you. And so at the door, he says, I will meet with you. At the door, I will speak to you. At the door, I will reveal myself to you. Verse 43, And there I will meet with you, the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So God's very presence will fill the tabernacle, and that's what makes it a special place. People all the time talk about Jerusalem and Israel as the Holy Land. But if you've ever been there, the only thing that's holy about it is the fact that the Son of God existed there. That His presence is made known there in a special way. But my point is, is that the tabernacle itself was made holy. It was set apart. Remember that phrase that keeps coming up, consecrated to fill? The tabernacle was filled because God was there. Let me submit to you this. The only good thing that is ever going to come from being in heaven, everybody's always excited about what the roads are made out of and, and what it's going to be like. But the reality is, is that the main focal point of heaven, the reason you should want to go there is not because no more sorrow, no more pain. Although that will be a fruit of being there, the reason you should want to go there is because the Lord's presence will completely fill it. In Psalm chapter 16, I think it's verse 11, says that in God's presence is fullness of joy because he's there you ever notice that the streets are made out of gold it's not because the the streets are awesome there it's because in comparison to god's glory gold's going to be worthless worth nothing no stable value no 401k can make you nearly as happy as god's presence in your life and he says i'm going to meet with you at the door he says, so I will consecrate the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and I will consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me as priests. I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. He will be with them, Emmanuel. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Not only that, but they shall know that I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am Yahweh their God. I am. I'm the becoming one. I'm going to be everything that they need. So much that, if you turn with John to John chapter 10, as we close, John chapter 10, verse 7, he said, I want you to sacrifice at the door. I want you to bring the sons of Aaron to the door to be washed. I want you to consecrate them at the door. I will speak to them at the door. You notice that? Bible study is that simple, by the way. If you see a phrase repeated over and over again, focus on it and dig in. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them again. He, he had said this to them before. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door. I'm the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. If you're here today and you're not sure whether or not you're saved, my question for you is, have you met with God at the door? Jesus Christ is the door. It's not any more complicated than that. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to catch blood. You don't have to slit an animal's throat. He is all of those things we read about today. Are you assured that if you died right after you leave this place, that you would be able to enter in? It says here, I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. That's a promise, folks. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The Lord, he is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy anybody else that comes and says they offer life to you. They're a thief. They're a robber. You're getting robbed at very best. Whatever's promised to, to make your life better, it's, a, it's, it's not. He says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Do you know why this is in conjunction with that verse? Because if you look at the photo there I have for you on the screen, they would build these walls all the way around, the sheep folds, the places that the, the sheep would be safe overnight. That's where they would keep them safe so that the, the thief, the wolves, and all the things that would kill and eat sheep wouldn't be able to enter in. But if anything entered into the place where the sheep are kept, they had to go through the door. And it wasn't a swinging gate. It wasn't one of those big red corral panels on a hinge. It wasn't, uh, you know, what's that little grate that they put over your driveway so that the, you know, it wasn't one of those where they, you know, the, the animals can't walk over it. It was a person. It was the shepherd. He would sit in the gap. He would make sure that anybody that got in was one of his sheep or they didn't get in. He would stand between danger and the sheep. So not only do you experience and receive eternal life, but you're now protected by the shepherd. He sits at the gate. He's the door. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way to enter into your presence, being Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for being between us and those things that endanger our well-being. And Father, thank you for sending the door. Before the door... People walked in darkness. They saw you in types and in shadows. We've studied through the tabernacle and the garments on the priests. We've looked at the priests themselves and we're looking at the sacrifices. All of these things are about you in, in significant ways, but until we beheld your glory in your son Jesus Christ, it was all a mystery. And yet that mystery has been opened up to us. So now that we can see, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen the Father. How long have you been with me, and yet you say you don't see the Father, and yet if you've seen me, you've seen not only me, but well, you've seen what the Father does. You've seen his character. You've seen his way. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for showing us the way. We want to walk in the way. We want to be pleasing to you. 
We want to have fellowship with God. I pray that if there's anybody here who has not met with you at the door, that they would take the time just to, to come up and pray with somebody and say, I, I've never seen it that way before. I need you, Jesus. So, Father, if there's anybody here today that's hurting and feels like they're completely unprotected, even though you've promised to protect them, I pray, Father, that you would remind them you're, you're standing at the door and you are protecting them <laughs> and that they don't even see all the other things you've protected them from, even though this thing seems big. Lord, thank you for loving us so comprehensively and clearly. Thank you for bringing us into green pastures. Thank you for the dry times that make us thirsty and see that we need you. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit that empowers us and opens our eyes and cleanses our ears so we can hear your voice. Lord, we need that fresh again. Cleanse our ears so we can hear your voice. Cleanse our hands so that we can properly serve you. And cleanse our feet so that we can walk in the way everlasting that leads to life and lead others in the same path. Lord, give us faith to do that. And we trust you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.